G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I've got Adam Nyalt on the show. He's from Rise Property Buyers. He's a buyer's agent in Perth, very good at what he does, and we're going to deep dive into his story. He's got a lot of interesting things to talk about. In this first part, we're going to cover how he started investing, his key learnings along the way, some of the mistakes he's made, and I dwell on a few of my mistakes too. We're going to look at how active to be and some of the pros and cons of being active versus passive, as well as preferred strategy. And we seem to have a common alignment on that. And we round out this episode looking at development and tips for adding value and choosing when to develop and renovate. So let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. G'day, Adam. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Really excited to be chatting uh, everything Perth Property today. Thanks for having me, Jared. So we normally catch up at the coffee shop we were just talking about. Got a lovely sunny day today in Perth. Got to love our winters, don't you? So good at the moment. We've had a really good run, but I think that's all going to come to a grinding halt on the weekend. (laughs) Well, you've just been down for a surf, so you certainly practice what you preach when it comes to property, giving you back your freedoms and, you know, being able to design a life. So it's awesome to see. Yeah, that's it. You know, life design is a big focus of mine and, you know, I always make sure that I get out for a surf or just try to maintain that life balance, I guess. Hmm. Give us some background on what you do for a living because obviously we help quite a few of your clients with their property management and we see the great deals that you're getting for people. Tell us what you actually do. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess I've just started a property buyer's agency a few years ago now. So I guess it's been a natural progression. Like I've been doing civil engineering for more than 20 years. Oh, so I, I forgot started, you were an engineer. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, civil designer. So yeah. I started off doing land development, large-scale subdivisions. Oh, cool. The big developers around Perth doing sewer design, drainage design, earthworks, retaining walls, roads, all that sort of thing. Um, I have to tell you, my dad about you because um that was his expertise and oh, was it really for, yeah 40 odd years wow they did yeah, a lot okay. of the larger um land developments and golf courses and stuff and you know might have crossed yeah. the path so yeah so that, that's my bread and butter and well was and i guess i moved when the mining boom picked up sort of 2000 you know mid 2000s i kind of moved into to large-scale mining projects and okay pretty much all iron ore and heavy haul rail, that sort of thing. And on the side, I've always done property. I bought my first property when I was 20, so have done that my whole life. And it's just been a natural progression, really. And now, now I'm doing that full time and I'm really loving it, you know, helping investors along their journey, just, just the way I did at the start and, you know, making sure they don't make the mistakes that I made along the way as well. Hmm. And you'd probably notice yourself that when you switch from just buying your own properties to doing it full time and helping many more people you go through those learning cycles like every day every week don't you and you know you just seem to really be able to spiral up on your own you know knowledge and experience and then feed that back to your clients which is the exciting thing so yeah 100 percent. and you know and obviously you're dealing with someone else's life as well so you've got to be a lot more diligent and you know make sure you're running through the right procedures and, and checking off all the things that that you need to do to find a good investment property 
Hmm. So how did you originally come across the idea of property investing? You said you bought your first property at 20. Any key influences that led to that? I guess um, in my family, we moved around a lot. So my parents bought and sold houses. And I don't really know, if, I don't think it was for making money. I think it was just, I don't really know, to be honest, just a mind-changing thing, I guess. So we moved a lot. I moved around schools and that sort of thing. So we eventually built a property or my parents built a property probably when I was about eight or nine. Um, you know, we went through the whole process, going to the display homes and picking out all the kitchen cabinet colours and that sort of thing. And so I, I kind of got dragged along through that process and I learned about building and watching everything take shape and, you know, seeing all the bricks go down and going into my bedroom before it was actually ready to move into and that sort of thing, getting really excited about it. So I guess it's been in my blood from a young age parents always talking about it and that sort of thing so I've always kept my eye on the paper when I was young and looked at prices and always dreamt about buying my own property one day and and then I got to an age where I finally could do that and you know I did just that and it takes a fair bit to get the first one doesn't it it's like you know all your savings everything into it you know (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and it's a big step and when you haven't had the education behind you you don't really know what you're doing you just kind of jump into it well I did anyway there wasn't podcasts and YouTube or anything like that back then there was a newspaper and and books and I didn't even really read any books at that point to do investing so it was just a, a leap of faith and learn the hard way I guess And what were some of the numbers and what did you end up buying on that first one? Yeah, okay. So Can you remember them? (laughs) Yeah, I actually got a a really good one by fluke, I guess. I was just scanning through the the West Australian, as you do, looking at all the properties and the prices. And I saw one that was $39,850. And it was a one-bedroom unit in Mosman Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it it said in the ad, it was only a two or three-line ad, Unit, $40,000, $79,000, $110 a week rent. And I thought, gee, that sounds pretty good. I didn't know how to calculate yield or anything like that back then. Hmm. But I knew that sounded pretty good. So I said to my dad, hey, maybe I should buy this. And, you know, he took me down there. We, we met the owner who was selling it on his own. Yeah, we ended up putting an offer in and getting it under contract. And I ended up managing that myself. I didn't really even know about property managers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, well, that would have been an eye-opener as well. Yeah, exactly. So I ended up running all that myself and, you know, had an interesting process of, you know, interviewing tenants and all that at 20 years of age. So <laughs> it was a good learning process. And was there any key sort of things that stuck out learning wise or that you've reflected on since? Because I guess at the time, you know, people can sometimes get so into trying to know everything and procrastinating and, you know, really you just learn so much by taking action. And yes, you do things differently with what you know now, but if you didn't take that first step, you wouldn't be where you are now. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's right. It's just a matter of trial and error and just jumping in, you know, you just got to take the plunge. You've heard a lot about investing and you've planned it a little bit and you just got to take the plunge and make sure you get the right investment. You know, when I bought that one, I kind of hoped, I thought, oh, it's 40,000 now. What if in five, 10 years, it might be 50 or even 60, you know? And I thought (laughs) that just sounds ridiculous. To me, that was a, a big gap to kind of fill, but I thought, let's just see what happens. And I had a lot of negative talk from a couple of guys at work. They were like, oh, don't buy a property. I bought one 
one of the guys bought one in Wembley, a unit in Wembley for 90 odd thousand. And he said, now it's worth 87. And that kind of scared me a little bit, but um, I did it anyway. And yeah, I guess it all paid off in the end. Hmm. And I guess you're always going to have those naysayers around you if you listen hard enough or if you tell enough people, you know, and they can be well-meaning just trying to help you in the right direction. But just because it hasn't worked for someone else doesn't mean it can't work for you if you, you know, approach it smartly and make good decisions. Exactly right. You know, everyone's experience can be different and, you know, you can take learnings from their experience, but, you know, you've got to kind of make up your own mind and gain the confidence and, you know, you do that through education. So, And have you still got that one or have you you ended up selling it at some point? I did actually sell that one and I had to jump on RP data to check when when I did that and I sold that in 2006 for 215,000, which is, you know, 540 odd percent growth. But funnily enough, that property had been sold a couple of times since I think two or three times for a higher price maybe 250 or 260 but it just sold in June 2022 for 215,000 so exactly the market has certainly (laughs) taken a battering hasn't it yeah, that's so, that's it. So in 16 years, it hasn't gone up a dollar. So well, that's where property do. selection can make you know a huge difference as well. 100. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So um, obviously, you had quite a few learnings from that first one, and then did you start to look more formally learn about property investing along the way, or when did you actually you know seek out other education, if you will? Yeah, I guess I kind of stepped it up a bit. Like once that property started growing, I realized that, you know, I started making more money off property than what I was earning in an annual income, you know? Mm, yeah. So I bought a second one and I bought a third one and I ended up doing a development in Wembley Downs. So throughout that whole process of getting excited about watching your property grow, I was also, you know, buying magazines, Australian Property Investor Magazine and that yeah. sort of thing. Reading other people's articles, that's probably the stand out for me in those magazines just watching people's growth and you know seeing those articles about oh this guy's bought 15 properties and this was his journey and how he got there and and I kind of read those articles and like you know if he can do that you know I can certainly do that as well so so that kind of sent me on the journey and you know it's not been a perfect journey but it's definitely been a really good journey so happy that I started early Mm. and I think that's what it's about is just educating you know once you've made that decision it's just about you know listening to podcasts and listening to other people and probably the you know one of the things that I didn't do is find a mentor I guess so that's that's one thing that I would advise is getting a mentor someone who's done it before or someone who's in the position where you would like to be whether that's developing or you know buying commercial property whatever it might be just finding someone who has that experience and they can kind of lead you down that path as well definitely accelerates the journey doesn't it and you notice over time that their mindset translates to you and what you think is possible you know, you have to keep raising that wealth thermostat as different people call it. So, you know, it is true that if the people that you're hanging around with aren't earning a hundred thousand, 200,000, a million a year, then, you know, you can only think at that level. I've definitely found great value in that and changed my mentors over time because someone that is, you know, 10 steps ahead of you may not even be open to giving you their time because they're, I always try to give something back to my mentors, you know? Mm. So if there are a few steps ahead of you, there can actually be a two way street and that person's going to want to spend 
more time investing in you because they're getting something back. And then the further along you get, the greater, the further along the people that you can attract to spending time with you. So sometimes you can't just go out and, you know, have Richard Branson as a mentor or whoever that may be. Yeah, exactly. How have you kind of gone about finding your mentors? Has it just been an organic thing of who's crossed your path or have you purposely sought them out? Or, yeah, I just thought I'd ask that because most people say, yeah, find a mentor, but how? (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. I guess it's, it's probably been a little bit more difficult for me because I've done a lot of traveling in my life. So I lived overseas for seven years, doing a lot of surfing, snowboarding, that sort of thing, living in the Alps. Uh, and then I did a lap around Australia for a couple of, couple of years. So in that whole time, I've been kind of keeping my toe in the water with property, investing, getting development sites so I can do a development, that sort of thing. Did some developments on the East Coast as well while I was living in Byron Bay. So I lived over there for a couple of years. So I guess finding mentors on the road is a little bit harder, but, you know, especially as you said, with Zoom and that sort of thing, it's a lot easier to do. So now I've been back in Perth the last few years I've kind of started mixing in different circles such as Perth property developers and you know groups like that are really good because you are mixing with people with common interests and you naturally gravitate to someone you might get along with and, and they're heading down a similar path to you so that's been really helpful is sort you know seeking out groups that offer that kind of education that you might be looking for hmm. a member of a mastermind group which is part of EO which is an entrepreneur organization so not for everyone but they're sort of fellow like-minded business owners that also many of them love investing and stuff. And that's where I've sort of that I've been tapping into that sort of group recently. And then I love running this podcast because it gives me a chance to uh, <laughs> you know, reach out and get to know people. And I spend half the time often chatting to them about my own investing before we hit record. You know, that's been a great one. But when I was younger, I just used to go to all the investing, you know, catch up groups and yeah. they used to post them on the Summersoft forum and these days called Property Chat. And we'll have, I've been meaning to actually start running some face-to-face networking things again. You know, I've got a nearly four-year-old, so I stopped doing a lot of out-of-hours things and it can be hard. And with COVID as well, I got out of habit of not organizing these things. And so, yeah, it's a good reminder to maybe... Um, launch a meetup for everyone coming up yeah that's a great idea you know put it in the calendar and send out a few emails and, and uh, yeah. get everyone together love that idea i think we're we're all sort of craving that connection especially when we haven't had it a long time, for a long time so yeah yeah it, it's been an interesting couple of years that's for sure but um yeah, I think, you know, the way that the world has changed over those two years, it's opened up new doors as well, you know, with hmm. Zoom and people working from home and that sort of thing. It's really, really changed the, all industries, really. So I think I think hmm. it's been a good thing. It's also opened up the, the opportunity and a lot more people are more open to investing interstate now. And, you know, a lot of our new clients at the moment are coming from Sydney, Melbourne, especially when their markets are cooling off and they're looking across to Perth because you know, we represent such great affordability and, mm. and great rental yield. You know, if they're going to go spend 500, 800K over there, they're going to end up with a shoebox that's probably going to rent for 2%. Whereas here, you know, you're going to get a pretty reasonable house or something with a decent land component. And we're probably going to be getting the 4 to 6% rental yields. Are you seeing many of the over East buyers at the moment? And who is your sort of main clients that you are seeing buying? 
Yeah, definitely. I think most of my clients are actually from over east. We also have quite a few expats. So, you know, people are definitely seeing value in Perth. You know, if you're looking at your property fundamentals, buying, you know, property of, you know, a house on a large block of land with a strong yield in, you know, in a good suburb that's less than 20 k's from the city or whatever, you know, Perth really offers that. So I think a lot of people, obviously Sydney's done cycle after cycle. So it's really difficult to to purchase a place over there and even a lot of the regional areas have gone up a lot Mm. Um, Queensland has gone gangbusters so naturally people are looking for those opportunities and with purse affordability at the moment it just presents a great opportunity yeah exactly well wrap back around and talk more about the market in a minute before I get too (laughs) too too sidetracked yeah (laughs) but uh, tell us a bit about some of your biggest and best mistakes so far or your aha moments because we all kind of have those key ones that stay with this um any come up for you i think buying in the right area is is super important you know i made a mistake if we're going to talk about a mistake that, that i've done is one was in brisbane that i bought i had the option to buy in a pretty inner city suburb mount gravat pretty back in 2000 and i'd say 2007 or 8 somewhere around there and i was looking at houses in mount gravat and they were old that couple of them had development potential but i thought look i'm probably not going to be able to go over there and you know build townhouse and that sort of thing. So a lot of them were a little bit run down. So maintenance might have been a bit of an issue. So I started looking in outer areas, new suburbs. So. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. I know how well Mount Gravatt has gone too because I just recently bought a property in Brisbane, not because I believe Brisbane's going to do better than Perth, but just because it's part of my larger plan to own properties in each of our major capital cities. And I own a lot in Perth, so I wanted to diversify a bit. And yes, Mount Gravatt was on the radar of how well it's gone. I bought quite close to there in Holland Park. Um, mm, that's great. So, yeah. So yeah, keep going with this story because I want to yeah. see how this pans out, but a lot of it's yeah. true to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, it's not going to end well. So, so I ended up buying a, or building a house in Springfield Lakes. So Springfield Lakes was really being pushed by those property investor magazines. Yes. um, I had a property out in Ipswich there, obviously, which is right next to Springfield Lakes. So yeah, I'm feeling if we could both go back in time, you'd buy a mountain cravat, I'd buy in Holland Park sooner. Oh yeah, we would have felt a lot of pain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what ended up happening there? Did you do a house and land package or did you um, buy something that was new on completion? Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I ended up buying a, a, a piece of land and looked around for a builder and built a house. I think I built it for about three seventy thousand, which was a little bit cheaper than what I could have got a house for in Mount Gravatt. I think Mount Gravatt at the time would have been low four hundreds, maybe mid floors. Yeah, yeah. So that was your total cost outlay, three seventy. Yeah, three seventy. Yeah. Okay. So it, it wasn't, you know, it was a pretty low outlay hmm. and they were pumping it up in the media, you know. Well, that's the thing. There can be so many good headlines with these, you know, areas that are getting lots of infrastructure and lots of, you know, amenities and lots of money thrown in. But yeah. what they don't tell you, obviously, is that they've also got lots of land supply and land for, for decades that they can continue to release. That's the, exactly you know, right. 
they're just stacking up the stages and going further up and further up. You know, they've, they've got the train line there, so they've got good transport. They've got all the fundamentals, mm. but that supply and demand thing is what's held it back over the years. Mm. You know, I think the average price of Springfield Lakes is 695 or somewhere around there, but Mount Gravatt is now 1 million. So, you know, that's a, that's a big difference. Yeah, and that actual sort of site now would probably be 1.5. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something so, developable. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that's why it's so important to to understand the fundamentals and that supply and demand thing is such a huge driver for growth. And you've just got to be really careful that the area that you're buying in is going to stay in demand and, you know, it doesn't have any potential for supply shocks or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, good one. Well, I wish for our listeners that they don't have to learn the painful ways that we have <laughs> and can uh, hopefully take our advice when it comes to, you know, making those selections and not, you know, going through the same pain. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And it's also about deciding whether you want to be an active or passive in- investor. Mm. Like I kind of learned pretty quickly that you can generate equity through developing or, or renovation, you know, so you can either buy and hold for long term and that's, that's a great strategy if you're buying in the right area. But if you want to just get there a little bit quicker, you can look for those opportunities that have subdivision potential. Even if it's something that you are not educated in at the time, you can Mm -hmm. learn down the track. But you've also got to be careful not to buy a property that can't be developed. Okay, it might be subdivision. Don't pay the potential for it. If no, that's it right. Can't actually be done, or exactly. it's there's exactly. those hidden costs that are just so prohibitive that anyone that knows what they're looking at would just say, "Yeah, nah, I'm not paying for the potential for that." No, that's it. That's right. And you know, just things like a birch tree can kind of kill kill your opportunity to develop. Or you got to look at setbacks and make sure there's enough room in the backyard if you can demolish an alfresco or something, what's the front house going to be worth if you're putting the fence right up hard on the back door and those sort of things. There's a lot lot to think about, but, you know, um, I think buying those development sites in the reasonable areas are always going to grow, have that solid capital growth in the future because they've just got that and they're carrying that opportunity into the future and you, you kind of, you've got two blocks growing or maybe three blocks growing in value. The one mistake I do see people make is probably overly focusing on I need a development site and trading everything off for that. So mm, yeah, the location for me is what does the heavy lifting and if you have to compromise that, I'd take a, a property without development potential any day over a poorly located property that has development potential. Yeah, so. definitely. Definitely. You know, and th- there are other factors to think of, like a lot of the development sites are old houses and then you've got maintenance yes. issues. And if you need to kind of understand that this house may cost you a little bit in the meantime, and you, yep. you need to work that out. How much is this going to cost me to hold? And that's why I think developing straight away is probably for me anyway, the better strategy because you can eliminate all those maintenance issues straight away, get the house up to shape, do the subdivision, build and move it on or whatever you want. You know? That was my golden rule when I was starting out that I wouldn't buy something unless I can develop it straight away. But yep. I think as you get a bit more solid, you know, capital base behind you and you can weather that, you know, that holding cost and you just factor it in and you still know that that land component is going to, you know, grow much better for you even when you take out the maintenance, even when you take out 
you know, that larger holding cost with the lower rental yield. That's why I still prefer it, but everyone's at, at a different stage and can afford different things. So yeah, that's really good to separate in terms of where you're at in your journey. Cause yeah, early on I was like, yeah, I, I can't afford this. It's going to cost me too much in maintenance, cost me too much in the lower rental yield. I need to develop it straight away. Yes, exactly right. And you know, they're definitely not a good first investment because the yields are usually pretty low. So mm. And that um, um, cost to renovate and or develop usually has to come from cash or equity and you can't borrow for it. So that, you know, yeah, you need to have that money around and plan to do it and have it ready, if that makes sense. Exactly right. And, you know, because you don't want that property to eventually shoot you in the foot, you know, five years later, it's costing you money. You don't have the money to develop it and then you end up offloading it and you kind of, you know, you're further behind than when you started. Yeah. So what I've done on my recent Brisbane purchase is that I'm spending approximately 2% of the purchase price, but say of 35 odd grand to, you know, give it a full cosmetic redo so that I can attract a better tenant. I can increase the rental yield by 30%. And I'm just going to then sit it on the shelf and forget about it. But I'm prepared to spend that money up front to make it a, you know, attract the better tenants, have a better rental yield, and it'll probably increase the price as well by 60 grand for the 35 that I spend. I can forget about it. But if I was going to move it forward straight away, I wouldn't do those things. I'd just demo the house and <laughs> build the two. So exactly. Yeah. No, that's a really good strategy. And, you know, there's not many places where you can double your money, you know, by adding 30,000 yeah. to your reno and getting 60 back. You know, you can only do that at the casino on red or black. And <laughs> that's a 50, 50 yeah. as well. Look, even if I was only making dollar for dollar, I would do it because I know I'm, I see everything on the property management side. I just know if I can attract a quality tenant versus someone that's marginal for yeah. me, I don't, I'd pay if I can just break even to not have the hassles that's worth it for me <laughs> yeah no that's a really good point you know making the investment property a little bit more attractive to tenants and exactly that attracting a good tenant you don't want to have you know an average bathroom and average kitchen where someone's like oh you know that's great we can afford to move into that because it's not very nice you know hmm. and it doesn't take too much on you know to get a property to being well presented without get it going overboard you know you can repaint you can polish boards you can you know change fittings you can um, you know do blinds if needed and um, you know there's renovation companies around that can kind of manage the whole thing you pay a little bit extra but then you don't have to I don't want to be you know going to spotlight and <laughs> you know coordinating all these things um, so yeah just keep in mind you don't have to do it all hands-on yourself no that's that's exactly right I mean the electrician will put in a, a downlight for 40 odd dollars and that's a super cheap super cheap upgrade taking out all those ugly light fittings and, and putting down lights through the house and, and it's a really quick job hmm. paint just totally brightens up a house new blinds that's you know three thousand dollars or whatever it might be so there's quite a few quick things you can do just to get that property looking really good and you'd know a lot about that because <laughs> you see a lot of investors doing that with um with your properties on your books i guess yeah definitely 
Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Adam. I'm really excited to have you back on part two in the next episode where we're going to go into one of your projects and all the nitty gritty and unpack that. Lots of learnings for us all in that one. And you're also going to reflect back on how you'd start again if you were uh, back at the beginnings. I'm sure that'll help a lot of investors in that place. And we're also going to riff um, about what we see for the year ahead in the Perth property market and some of your future plans. So excited to catch you on that one. For free market reports on your suburbs of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorsedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group to be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions, and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. Just a reminder that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature, as we don't know your specific situation. You should always seek professional advice before taking any action. I'll see you in the group.